everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Saw a B today, so, you know, matter of fact, I don't like to brag, but I've seen quite a few bees in my day. I'd say, conservatively, I've seen upwards of a hundred bees in my life. Yeah, but you know what I have never seen? Not once? A beehive. Which seems a little suspicious. It leads me to one of two conclusions. Option one is that cartoonists do not know as much about bees and bee architecture as I was led to believe. Like, maybe a cartoonist saw a bee one time and was like, oh, that's like a less shitty hornet. I wonder what their house looks like. Probably looks like a hornet's nest, but less shitty. And I can't fault that logic, because a cartoon beehive does kind of just look like a less shitty hornet's nest. So that's option one. Cartoons have been lying to me, and maybe I have seen a beehive, but I didn't know it was a beehive, because it didn't look like a cartoon. Now, I've got to admit that is a possibility, but I don't want to believe that because most of my knowledge about bees and a fair amount of my knowledge in general comes from cartoons. So I'd rather not call that into question if it's avoidable. Plus, if cartoons are wrong about bees, then that means I'll probably never see a swarm of bees turn themselves into a bow and arrow and then shoot a segment of their population at a bear's butt as it chases it around. And that'd be a real bummer. So that brings us to option B, if you will. Huh? Because bees? Anyway, option B is that there simply aren't enough beehives for all of the bees in the world, which means that when it comes to bee real estate, it's a seller's market. So if like so many people right now, you're looking to transition careers, I would suggest becoming a bee real estate agent. Now, there are some drawbacks to this, some rather obvious ones. First of all, bees are notoriously cash poor. And so when it's time for you to get paid, there's a pretty good chance they're going to try to pull some kind of shit like, Oh, money? I thought you said honey, because I'm a bee. And you'll have to be like, Look, Frank, I told you the amount that I needed in dollars, and dollars doesn't sound like honey, okay? So cut this shit. But the thing is, Frank doesn't have any actual money, so you will actually have to accept honey as payment if you want to get paid at all, which is kind of a bummer. I mean, look, I like honey as much as the next guy, unless the next guy happens to be Winnie the Pooh or my father-in-law. Man, that guy loves honey. When he comes and visits, we actually have to hide it from him. I actually put out a decoy jar that has a little bit of honey in it, but it's kind of crystallized so that he doesn't suspect anything. Because otherwise he would just eat all of our honey. Sorry, Bill. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, bees. In summation, bees are nice, but probably don't have any money. Now let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme was sent in by Eric Engelhard, and its content is predicated on the idea that Clea was introduced in 1964, about 15 years before the comic we're covering today. So with that in mind, the Defenders should throw Clea an elaborate quinceañera, 15 years since Clea debuted as Doctor Strange's Boo, 
Well, he also gives her lessons in the magic profession, which is totally normal and not creepy at all. Patsy plans the waltz dancing. Kyle provides the financing. Hulk and Val go ham on the piñata, while Steve sulks and drinks piña colada. But the life of the party is Wong, who DJed and chose every song. If I didn't mention his banter, I'd be remiss. His emceeing is as smooth as Hub's synopsis. Thanks, Eric. Had a little trouble with the meter, but I did my best. Defenders, number 78. December, 1979. The Return of the Original Defenders. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Herb Trimpey. Inked by Mike Esposito. Letterded by Clem Robbins. Colorded by Ben Sean. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Hellcat. The Wasp, Moondragon, Clea, Nighthawk, Yellowjacket, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, and Namor the Submariner. That's a lot of Defenders. Previously in the Defenders. An indeterminate but seemingly insignificant amount of comic book time ago, Doctor Strange traveled to a bizarre high fantasy realm called Tunnel World. During the course of this sorcerer's sojourn, Steve learned of the existence of a cosmic-level threat to the entire universe, which he called the Unmentionable One, on account of saying this being's name would summon it and make it more powerful. But I call it the Underpants Monster, on account of old people sometimes call their underpants their unmentionables. To help him combat this existential menace, Steve headed to Atlantis to seek the aid of his occasional aquatic ally, Namor! Hooray! The subaquatic sovereign slightly sassed Steve, but ultimately agreed to aid the arrogant archmage. The powerful pair of pals headed back to the Sanctum Sanctimonious, where they hoped to reconnect with the Hulk. Unbeknownst to them, the Jade Giant was experiencing troubles of his own. The Green Goliath had been frolicking in the forest when he ran afoul of a big shiny glob of space goo that worked for the underpants monster. Hulk attempted to smash his amorphous antagonist, but the silvery space Barbapapa blorped the bounding behemoth into their space tummy and knocked him out. The extraterrestrial blob then implanted the true name of their underpants monster overlord into the now slumbering Hulk subconscious, erasing all memory of the encounter from his mind. Then they fucked off back to space. Bye, silvery space Barbapapa! As for the rest of the gang, Clea joined the Defenders. Hooray! Then I guess everyone forgot that she joined, so she went home. Bye, Clea. Nighthawk was being investigated for financial malfeasance, so in order to keep their name from being besmirched by the press, he reluctantly resigned from the Defenders. Bye, Nighthawk. Then he returned to yell at everyone and angrily resigned from the Defenders. Bye again, Nighthawk. Soon after Kyle's redundant resignation, a trio of strangers named Richard Rory, Amber Grant, and Ruth Hart asked if Valkyrie and Hellcat could help them locate their pal, James Michael Starling, a precocious preteen with a mysterious connection to the caped man from the Omega the Unknown comic book, who had gone missing either a week or two years ago, depending on whether we're talking about comic book time or actual time. Val and Patsy agreed to help, but found themselves both short-handed and without transportation. So Patsy called on her old Avengers pal, Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. the Wasp, to lend a hand. Janet picked up the gang in the Avengers Quinjet, and they quickly tracked the missing youth to rural Pennsylvania, where they were understandably surprised to find that James Michael and his runaway pal Diane were being attacked by purple space robots. 
Valkyrie, Hellcat, and the Wasp started fighting the robots, but soon found themselves overmatched. So, Patsy placed a distress call, which was soon answered by Moon Dragon, a sexy bald lady and self-described goddess of the mind, who had once trained Patsy to be a psychic Jedi ninja on one of Saturn's moons. Hooray! Moon Dragon strode up to the robots and asked to speak to their manager. But before they got a chance to comply with her request, James Michael inexplicably teleported to Las Vegas, and the robots hopped into their flying saucers to give chase. Our heroes pursued, and to make a long, complicated nonsense story a shorter, complicated nonsense story... <sighs> it turned out that the space robots were a race of sentient, inorganic aliens who had created both James Michael Starling and the mysterious caped man as, respectively, the ultimate and penultimate stages of evolution for their race. Then they sent them off to live on other planets with no knowledge of their origin or nature. Unfortunately, the Cape Man got put on a planet of warriors which gave him nonsense superpowers which were incompatible with his programming. The purple space robots came to retrieve their compromised creation, but the Cape Man didn't recognize his creators and tried to fight them off, accidentally blowing up the planet in the process. Whoops! Then he fled to Earth where Jan Michael Vincent, who was made of flesh but somehow still a robot I guess, had been placed. Before getting killed by police in the streets of Las Vegas, the caped man uploaded his nonsense superpower into JMS. Uh-oh. Like his perplexed predecessor before him, James Michael used his powers to attack his purple robot progenators, killing all of them. Moondragon swiped Patsy's psychic powers out of her brain and used them to clue the rampaging boy robot in as to his true backstory. Unfortunately, not unlike myself, James Michael was unable to process all of this information. He started to use his new doomsday power to blow up the planet, but then he changed his mind and just exploded himself instead. Bummer. Moondragon told the defenders that they all did a bad job, then flew up to space. Bye, Moondragon. Gadzooks! What the fuck just happened? Are James Michael Starling and the caped man really gone for good? And how will Doctor Strange, the Hulk, and Namor begin their quest to defeat the Underpants Monster? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Don't worry about it. Surprisingly, yes. And... The same way you begin any quest. They go to a tavern to gather information. A strange person approaches Stephen Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious in Greenwich Village. The individual in question is enormous, green, and refers to themselves in the third person as Hulk. But, as they're wearing a trench coat, it's impossible to tell who they are for sure. After a moment or two of internal debate as to whether they would prefer to stand in the rain or go inside and deal with Steve's bullshit, the stranger heads into the sanctum and removes their coat. Hey! Turns out it's the Hulk! Hi, the Hulk! Stephen Namor greet the Hulk. Doctor Strange wonders aloud why the Hulk resisted the vague mystical summoning he sent for the big green guy. Hmm. Well, Steve, off the top of my head, I'd say there are a couple of options. Either it's because you're kind of an asshole, so the Hulk always resists your summonings, be they mystical or otherwise. Or it's because he was busy getting partially digested by a giant silver space barbapapa who turned him into a sleeper agent for the underpants monster. Perhaps surprisingly, Steve assumes the first option is the more likely of the two. After some mandatory light bickering, the Hulk and Namor agree to accompany Steve on his mission to Tunnel World. Meanwhile, in a nearby cafe, Clea sips a cup of coffee and thinks about how bored she is. Fair enough. 
high above the Earth's atmosphere, Moon Dragon sits in her spaceship and thinks about how she is definitely never, ever going to team up with the Defenders again. At least not for another 47 issues, anyway. Then she loads the Caped Man and James Michael Starling's respective corpses into coffin torpedoes and fires them into the sun. Cool. Meanwhile in Las Vegas, Richard Rory, Amber Grant, Ruth Hart, and Diane, who doesn't get a last name, commiserate with the Wasp, Patsy, and Valkyrie about how fucked up the end of the last issue was. Richard has decided to stay in Las Vegas, or what remains of Las Vegas after James Michael's rampage, and everyone stands around and tells him what a great guy he is and how much they're going to miss him. The Avengers jet is pretty thoroughly trashed, so Janet calls her husband Hank Pym, a.k.a. Yellow Jacket, a.k.a. Ant-Man, a.k.a. Giant-Man, a.k.a. Goliath, a.k.a. Inspector and Sector, which isn't officially a name he ever went by, but I'm kind of hoping it will catch on, to pick them up in the Avengers' spare jet. As they wait for their ride, Hellcat complains about the fact that Moondragon yoinked her nascent psychic abilities. Hey, could be worse. Sure, she took the telepathy you never use, but you still have plenty of other things you never use, like your shadow cloak and your impulse control. After a few minutes, Inspector and Sector pulls up. Everyone bids a fond farewell to Richard Rory and piles into the jet to head home. Back in New York, billionaire-do-well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, formerly a.k.a. Nighthawk, currently k.a. just Kyle, is hanging out in his penthouse apartment. He gets drunk, beats up his old costume, and whines about the fact that he's not allowed to superhero around anymore. He smashes his whiskey glass and then gets a call from one of his employees, who tells him that he finally finished building a new Nighthawk costume that has a bunch of extra missiles and shit. Gee, maybe Moondragon should swing by and swipe Kyle's fiscal responsibility to add to her collection of unused abilities. I'm pretty sure that thing is still unopened and in its original packaging. While Kyle bemoans the fact that he is no longer allowed to dress up as a bird, his erstwhile non-teammates are in a jet above Colorado. Hank notices that an Air Force base beneath them appears to be under attack. Ruth, Amber, and Diane hop into an escape pod, which is jettisoned to a nearby town that seems to be a safe distance from the fighting, and the rest of the gang swoops down to enter the fray. Two groups of villains are attacking the base. Let's meet them! The first group is called Mutant Force, and is made up of former members of a recent, for the late 70s, iteration of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Peepers is a little fellow with enormous eyeballs that have no eyelids. He's really good at looking at stuff. Hi, Peepers! Lifter is a big burly guy who's good at lifting things and can maybe control gravity some. Hi, Lifter! Slither is a snake man! Hi, Slither! Burner has long white hair and a dope mustache. He can shoot beams of heat out from his hands and maybe forehead. Hi, Burner. Shocker can send blasts of electricity out of his hands. And by hands, I mean lobster claws because he has lobster claws for hands and also feet. Hi, the Shocker. So that's Mutant Force. Now let's meet the other team of villains. Femforce. Femforce is a group of women. That's it. That's all we know about them. They have blue and purple outfits, but we don't learn their names, whether any of them have powers, or how many of them there are. Just that they are women. So, uh, okay. Hi, Femforce. 
the defenders charge into battle to thwart these two distinct and equally well-defined teams. Yellow Jacket immediately assumes leadership of the team because of course he does. Even in Silver Age comics, among other male characters scripted by Stan Lee, Hank Pym somehow managed to stand out as a chauvinist. That's like being known as the rich guy on your polo team. For some reason, none of the other defenders seem to object to Inspector and Sector ordering them around. Everybody fights everybody. Hank takes the time to patronizingly tell Val that she's doing a great job, and Shocker takes advantage of the distraction to electrocute the diminutive do-gooder with a blast from one of his lobster claws. Hooray! I mean, I know that he's nominally one of the good guys, but seriously, fuck that guy. Patsy subdues four or five members of Femforce, and Valkyrie and the Wasp take out Slither and Shocker, but Lifter, Peepers, and Burner manage to load up a pallet of gold bars, which I guess they had stolen from the army, and Hank's unconscious body, onto a big section of concrete. Then Lifter uses his gravity control powers to make the concrete super light, and Burner uses his heat blasts to propel it through the air, and the trio of crooks use the suddenly airborne slab of masonry as a getaway vehicle. Innovative. I mean, doesn't make a ton of sense, but innovative. Valkyrie, Hellcat, and the Wasp grab as many prisoners as they can and head back towards the Quinjet so that they can give chase to the fleeing felons and retrieve the stolen gold. And I guess rescue Yellowjacket too, you know, if there's time. They are about to board their vehicle when Amber runs up and is like, Quick, you guys, follow me into town. There's someone in the police station who can help you against mutant force. I can't tell you who because, um, reasons, but trust me. The gang seems to be in an order-taking mood because they follow Amber and do as she says. Val and Patsy notice that their guide seems to be acting a little weird. I mean, not so weird that they won't unquestioningly follow her instructions, but still, a little weird. As they enter the police station, something finally clicks for Val, and she's like, Hey Amber, how did you know that the group we were fighting was named Mutant Force? But by that time, it's too late. Val, the Wasp, and Hellcat find themselves surrounded by heavily armed members of Femforce. From off-panel, the group's leader informs our heroes that they are hosed. Bummer. As their non-teammates are dealing with the ramifications of Amber's apparent betrayal, Steve, Namor, and the Hulk traipse across the colorful high-fantasy landscape of Tunnelworld and approach a tavern. The heroes are traveling incognito so as not to provoke any undue attention. So instead of an arrogant young sorcerer, Steve is disguised as an arrogant, slightly older sorcerer. Instead of a huge, muscly green guy, the Hulk is disguised as a huge, muscly purple guy. And instead of an abdominally adroit, handsome Atlantean monarch, Namor is disguised as... an owl. Okay, didn't see that last one coming. The party rolls into the bar, which seems kind of like the prancing pony from Lord of the Rings. They find that the bar is patronized almost exclusively by Hobbit-esque tunnel world denizens, who are surprised to see larger customers enter their establishment. So it's actually kind of like the opposite of the Prancing Pony in that regard, because there it was humans who were surprised to see hobbits come into the bar. So, let's call this place... I don't know. What's the opposite of a Prancing Pony? The Accounting Clydesdale. The bartender at the Accounting Clydesdale goes up to Steve and is like, Hey, what, do you work for the underpants monster or something? Get the fuck out of here. Steve is like, Easy there, Ballsquip. 
Look a little closer, and you'll find that although my disguise spell is excellent, it's not quite as impenetrable as a trench coat and fedora. Do you recognize me now? The hobbitsy dude, who is apparently named Bosquip, is like, Oh shit, Steve, it's you. Sorry about that. Let me get a drink for you and your purple buddy and that inexplicably attractive owl you're carrying. Grab a table in the back. There's a dude who's been waiting to talk to you. Guy in a hooded cloak who won't shut up about prophecies. Can't miss him. Somewhat trepidatious, the disguised heroes approach the table where the hooded figure is seated. Namor is like, We weren't expecting anyone. You'd better not work for the underpants monster. Now show your face. Also, give a hoot. Don't pollute. Sorry, this disguise is starting to get to me. I meant Imperious Rex! The hooded stranger is like, Calm down, guys. I'm on your side. See, there's this prophecy that says I'm supposed to act as your guide if you're going to defeat the underpants monster. Hi, my name is Eroica. Nice to meet you. Eroica removes his hood to reveal a handsome face with pointy eyebrows not too dissimilar to those Namor usually sports. Atop his head is a swoosh of orange hair that looks like it might have been dispensed from a soft-serve ice cream machine. Oh, and it's also probably worth mentioning that Eroica also has an enormous pair of wings as broad as he is tall, growing out of the side of his head. To be continued. I wonder if the reason Namor decided to disguise himself as an owl is that he heard that Nighthawk was pissed off that he wasn't able to dress up as a nocturnal bird of prey anymore, and Namor figured he'd show how much better at it he was than stupid old Kyle. I hope it was something like that. Although I wonder if the fact that you can't generally see an owl's abs was a sticking point for him. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's the 4th of July, so I've been listening to Public Enemies louder than a bomb repeatedly. Nice. So that's been going nicely. How about yourself? Good idea. I am a little bit embarrassed to admit I slipped my mind that it was the holiday for a minute and i had to go to the grocery store which is always kind of a surreal experience these days and was shocked at how many people were out and about and was like kind of muttering to myself and then i realized the reason for that so yeah it's the fourth of july indeed well uh you ready to talk about a comic book i am Corey, what did you think of this comic book um, I, I I think a lot of things about it. I was amused, I guess, at the introduction of the new team of bad guys. New teams, it seems like. Yeah, the I'm thinking in particular of the, I wrote their name down and now I can't find it, the mutant something. Mutant force, yes. Yeah, the mutant force and their counterparts, I guess, the fem force. Sure. Yeah, mutant force is made up of... Peepers, who has magic eyeballs that can do crazy vision things. And Slither, who looks like Globulus from the G.I. Joe movie and is like a snake man. And I guess he can slither pretty good. And Burner, who can burn things with his hands. And Lifter, who can lift things and maybe control gravity. And of course, Shocker, 
who has lobster claws. And why not? And I guess can shock people, but mostly he has lobster claws. For hands and for feet. Which even lobsters don't have. I know. Lobsters got like a bunch of little feet and then they got lobster claws for hands. So this guy's got them beat. Plus they're not electric. So advantage shocker, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think of mutant force? I really enjoyed just how goofy they were, especially Peeper with his comically huge unlidded eyeballs. Yeah. Pretty weird. His appearance super reminds me of that one panel from the ad for Angel Love that we talked about last week, where she's just saying, cocaine? (laughs) Peepers always has surprised at cocaine eyeballs. Mm -hmm. I had actually encountered these characters before. A couple of years ago, I was a guest on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, and Miles and I talked about Captain America Annual Number 4, which is where these guys first showed up. It was a really, really weird story where Captain America fought Magneto over possession of the world's tiniest mutant, who was just a little tiny guy wearing blue underpants. It was a heck of a story. It was really weird. Many of the details I never firmly grasped, and so they are now gone, but I sure as heck remembered these guys. Mm -hmm. Jack Kirby introduced them as the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, like a new iteration of them, with no explanation of why they were a replacement team. My suspicion at the time was he couldn't be bothered to remember who was already on the team of Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, so just decided to make up a whole new one, and it was these guys. Yeah, I like their, um, would it be apocryphal? I don't know. Their, their names that are just basically their, what they do. No, it wouldn't be apocryphal. It would be apocryphal if, like, it was a story that those were their names, but those weren't their real names. I guess you could call them self-descriptive names, maybe? Or their incredibly reductive names, perhaps? Because I could see Lifter being like, okay, yes, I can lift things. I also have a master's in comparative literature, but sure, yeah, call me Lifter. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for the most part, it seems like each of these guys is pretty much what it says on the box. And I can appreciate that for the most part. Really, the one wild card is that Shocker is not named Lobster Claws or Lobstercules or something like that. Just needed a a verb name, though. I guess that's true. He could be called Pincher. Yeah, but I feel like his electrical abilities are kind of his signature. Fair enough. Anybody can go around pinching. (laughs) After years of working in the service industry, Corey, I can definitively state that you are not alone in your opinion that anyone could go around pinching, but that's not true, Corey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's that. So, yes, we have all of these characters who are maybe a little bit reductive in their identities, but at least they do have identities, as opposed to Femforce, who... All we know about them are that they are women. We don't learn any of their names. Uh, They don't have particularly distinct appearances or costumes. Just they're women, so they're femforce. Yeah. Which seems pretty shitty. It does. And I also had the even shittier thought that perhaps the reason they're there is because, I I don't know if it was the writing or or what, but was this idea of, okay, so there's not been a lot of issues where just the female 
members of the Defenders are mm-hmm. the main point of the story. Therefore, you know, it'd be weird if we just had them fight like the normal, mostly male bad guys. So we need to, to put like an equal number of female characters in there for them to, to fight. So it's, you know, uh, sexist. Yeah, that may have been the thought behind it. I will say the last two issues of The Defenders did have pretty much an all-female makeup of the team, which was nice. But yeah, this issue, there's some rough stuff in there, and I'm not sure to what extent some of it's intentional. But you do have that kind of paralleled by the return of the original Defenders, which is incidentally the title of the issue, the return of the original Defenders. But It also didn't quite sit right with me that, I don't know, it seemed like Steve just kind of decided, well, we'll take the really good members of the team and go off on this big, most important adventure, and then we'll leave the JV squad behind. And it turned out that the JV squad just happens to be all of the women, which sucks. Yeah. And another thing about that that rankled me is that they left um, Clea behind. I had been happy that she had fairly recently just said, okay, hey, I'm a defender, and made it happen. Yeah. And no, Steve's like, go to the cafe and don't come out until we're back from fighting uh, Captain Underpants or whatever the... No, wait, that's a children's book. What's the name of the bad guy? The Unmentionable. Uh, The Underpants Monster. Yeah, the Unmentionable one. I was wondering if maybe it was Clea's birthday, because during her brief appearance, all we do see her doing is sadly nursing a cup of coffee and lamenting the fact that she doesn't get to be part of the team anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very birthday-like. I was honestly kind of glad to see those couple of panels, because in the past two issues that were wrapping up the Omega the Unknown malarkey, it seemed like there was just a complete dropping of the fact that Clea had been added to the team. She wasn't even mentioned. And so I was glad that it was like, okay, they do remember, and it does look like they're leaning back to her rejoining the team, which is nice. But yeah, there is that weird interruption, and it's shitty that she gets left behind like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's so bummed out, she doesn't even do her hair in her usual magical hairstyle. I know, there's no pretzel bangs. Mm-hmm. Very frustrating. Incidentally, maybe pretzel bangs are something we should consider serving at Sananigans. That sounds like it might be an appetizer. Speaking of brief, sad interludes, we also get one from Kyle. He doesn't really have a heck of a lot to do. It just seems to be a couple of pages where he's just like, Yep, I'm still here. Still not superheroing. Not crazy about that. Man... You make it sound like he has almost a reasonable approach to it, and the way that I read it is he drinks a giant glass of scotch or something, gets mad at the rain because he feels like it's an assault on him, Mm -hmm. and then smashes his glass. Mm -hmm. Beats up his costume. Beats up his costume, and then gets a call that his aggressive weapons package is ready. (laughs) And it's just like, oh, man. And then that's it. Yeah. I think that pretty much sums it up. And I don't know if I was describing it as reasonable, but I think that's reasonable for Kyle. You know, if we're grading on the shitty curve of his past behavior. I think that that I don't even know how to put it, but like this idea that like, oh, it's the weather outside is yucky. This is like an assault on me personally, like kind of sums up his, you know, tenuous grasp on things and his his sense of privilege, I guess, in the world. 
Yeah, his general worldview is that he is the protagonist, not just of this story, but of all stories. Mm -hmm. The other really brief interlude that we get is Moondragon. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Moondragon? This is, I think, the first that you've encountered her. Um, yeah, I've heard of her before on account of Patsy's training and um, f from the last couple episodes that uh, you and uh, Osvaldo put out. And I gather from the way that she's described by the other characters in this book as kind of unfairly blaming them for what happened with the conclusion of the Omega the Unknown story. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe she's being a little harsh, but maybe not. Yeah, I think she's being undiplomatic, but not necessarily wrong in general. I think she isn't great with people, but... uh yeah, the things that she does in this issue, she's on her way back to her home planet or whatever, which I guess is Saturn in this case, which isn't her home planet in terms of where she was born. I think she was born in like Arizona or something, but it's where she lives now is on a moon of Saturn, Titan specifically. But she's kind of on her way back there. There's an editor's note that she's going to be doing some stuff in Marvel 2 and 1. This time it's issue number 61. Last time it has cited it as issue 60. Either way, at the time this comic was printed, those issues hadn't been published yet, so I'm not sure if they exactly sync up the way they're supposed to. But on her way, she decides to shoot the corpses of the caped man and James Michael Starling into the sun. I was so impressed by that. <laughs> that is a funeral, man. That is a cremation with style. It is. Her reasoning behind it seems a little bit specious, though, because I think what she says is that, uh... No earthly interment would be proper for such beings spawned as they were in the unending cosmos. Yeah, they weren't spawned in the unending cosmos. They were just spawned on a different planet. So, like, I wonder if, like, Moondragon's view of Earth, or our solar system even, is just kind of like... Mainer's view of Maine, where you have the two categories, you're from here, or you're from away. Uh, because it's like, they're not from space specifically, they're just from a different planet in space. Like, I mean, I, I guess technically, we're all spawned in the unending cosmos. Ah. If you think about it. Time is a flat circle. Exactly. Mm. Spawned is a funny word too, isn't it? I mean, doesn't that just make you think of salmon? <laughs> it makes me think of salmon and 90s comic books. <laughs> but the other thing that's weird about that funeral situation that she sets up is that she's got Jan Michael Vincent's corpse with her, and at the end of the last issue, that was just a tiny pile of, like, space dust and Kirby crackle. So I don't know if she, like, managed to rehydrate them, or maybe she just painted a picture of them on the inside of his glass casket. But uh, it seems like a weird move. I think that if you end up getting vaporized into a tiny pile of dust, maybe you do a closed casket funeral. I don't know how we've gone this long without talking about the last panel of this comic book. Arioka. Oh my god. Ah, I was saying it Aroika. But yeah, Arioka indeed. Wow. 
Aeroica. That's how we're supposed to say it, I bet. Because, like, arrow, like, aeroplane. Uh-huh. Aeroica. That's fun. Yeah. Speaking of fun, man, there's some big-ass fucking wings strapped to that guy's noodle, huh? I feel like... I, I don't know if if the art team on this had a recent psychedelic experience, because didn't, in one of the recent issues, Ruby Thursday also sprout wings from her bowling ball head? Yes, and it is a very similar look. So I have a couple of theories as to what might be behind this new trope that's going on. One of them is that Herb Trimpe had heard Captain America referred to as winghead a lot of times and eventually just reached a point where it's like, that's not a winghead. I'll show you guys a winghead. Mm. And that that was the genesis of both of those images. The other one, which I think is maybe a little bit more plausible, is that this comic came out towards the tail end of 1979. So feathered hair is a really big thing. Mm. So I mean, like, if you've got feathered hair... This is some really feathered hair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is just a jarringly enormous, like, Scotty Pippen-like wingspan of wings that are emerging from this guy's head. And apparently the cowls in Tunnel World are employing some Tamaranian technology because his head looked a little bit lumpy before, but as soon as he pulls that hood back, it's just like, but damn, expanding like a mattress from a mattress company who will remain nameless until they give us some fucking money. Yeah, yeah, too bad, because I hear those things are pretty darn comfortable and convenient. Who knows? They may or may not be. I'm mm. withholding my praise of these mattresses that, I don't know, maybe they suck. Yeah, maybe they're the worst. Yeah, maybe they're filled with broken glass and live bees. The point is we have no way of knowing unless we get paid. So do you think that uh, young, well, I don't know how young, I guess he would be in his 20s, uh, Mark Sandman, rest in peace, of Morphine, was reading these because they have this song called Head With Wings? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. That's, I mean, that's, that's what makes the most sense. He would have been, I think, in his 20s when these came out. Yeah, so I think that would be a very formative experience for him. I mean, certainly that image made a heck of an impression on me. It seems like a very impractical physiological setup. Like, I feel like if he tried to fly or flap those things once, it would break his neck. Yeah, it does explain his radically arched eyebrows, because, like, have you tried ever to wiggle your ears and it kind of pulls up on your eyebrows? Hmm, exactly. Yeah, plus he can probably use those things to help him steer, like a rudder. Mm-hmm. And the hair is also quite impressive. It, you know how my hair kind of sticks up in the in the front, sort of like a human cubie doll kind of look? That doesn't sound great, but you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. So he's got me beat there. He's got like a full-on like rooster, like coxcomb hairstyle mohawk thing. It is very impressive. Yeah, there's a heck of a lot going on with this Arioika fella, and I can't wait to learn more of him. Nor... Is he the only surprisingly winged creature in this issue? Because we see that when they go to Tunnel World, Steve adopts mostly his old disguise. Knock off Gandalf. Right. Although there are some tweaks, which we will get to later. 
we see that Hulk is once again disguised as the Hulk, but maybe purple, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Namor is an owl. Holy shit. I'm embarrassed to say I was like, where's Namor? He's the owl. I mean, there's no other explanation. Like, we see the owl is talking and sounds kind of has Namor's arrogance, but it's a heck of a weird turn for him. God dang it. I'm going to I'm going to have to change my sucker now. <laughs> Did you think Namor just like decided to stay back? I don't know. I just thought he was. Yeah, maybe just like I'm going to go do my own heroic thing and let Steve bubble around Tunnel World. Yeah, this gives a couple of options, because if that is just a full illusion, then I really like to picture that in reality, Namor is just riding on the Hulk's shoulder like that, mm -hmm. like just sitting maybe cross-legged on there, which is kind of a fun image. Or even like piggyback. Yeah. Or what's it called? Like when you put a kid on your shoulders, like so they can see. Right. Piggyback yeah. is when they're like the backpack. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you call that. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think we have a word for it. Yeah, I think that's... Um, shoulder saddled. Yeah, shoulder saddle. Kids trying to sneak into the movies wearing a trench coat. That sort of thing. Oh, man, I wish the Hulk had the trench coat that he had in the first page of this in his purple disguise. That would be a much better disguise. They would be such a tall dude. Just imagine the movies somebody that tall could sneak into. Also... On that last page, in the top left-hand panel, it really looks like Hulk is drawn naked. Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, when in Tunnel World. This is not like a nudist planet, is it? It might There's... be for purple dudes? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, totally. Hulk is... Because is, in the previous page also. Yeah. See his buttocks. I think he's supposed to be furry. Like, maybe he's dressed as their version of, like, a bear or something. Oh. And as cartoon bears from Winnie the Pooh to Paddington have illustrated, bears don't need pants. But it is a weird choice. Speaking of panels like that, on page 27, we see a close-up of Steve's leg in his wizard disguise. And there are a couple of notable things about that panel. His leg is in the foreground, and in the background we see the image of the prancing pony or whatever that they are headed towards the end mm -hmm. so i guess he's wearing tights that have giant polka dots all over them yeah yeah i think we talked about this in one of the previous tunnel world issues of them being like a proto yoga pants yeah it also looks like he's got that staff right up his butt <laughs> <laughs> that didn't occur to me but i can see i kind of can't see it another way hmm well, he does look very stern and surprised <laughs> at the same time, so... Maybe the little people that he is talking to that... I... I don't know. I'm much more comfortable. The Hulk calls them little people. Doctor Strange calls them sputs, and we do see them referring to each other that way. That just sounds like it is a slur. But maybe they're fucking with him. Maybe they're like, no, it's the custom of our ways that wizards must always have a stick up their butt and polka dot tights. <laughs> and uh, purple dudes can't wear clothes and uh amphibians are all owls <laughs> good oh, one man. bots quick yep good old boz that's his name right yeah boz quip that is boz a quip. fun fucking name it is it is it's like boz skags but who makes quips 
Mm-hmm. I don't think Boz Skaggs is incapable of making quips. I feel like there might have been a jape or two somewhere in the Lido shuffle. Oh, yeah, no, he's. I'm sure he's quite capable. It wasn't meant to be. A character of infinite jest, this Boz Skaggs. Indeed. There is something about the owl that I guess is Namor just being so imperious and being like, we expected no one. Show your face, monstrous one. Just an owl getting all shirty with people. Not bad. Yeah, no, if you're going to pick a bird for Fishman to be, it would surely be an owl. Speaking of Bosquip, he says at one point, like when he figures out who Steve is, because he's like, I don't recognize you. And Steve's like, oh, yeah, look at me closer. And he's like, oh, okay, it's you. Uh, That dude I told he had to carry a stick up his butt and wear polka dot tights. When he recognizes him, he says, Philvot, clear out these rabble. We need room. Do you think Philvot is a different hobbitsy dude's name, or is Philvot a swear word? Oh, I just assumed it was a dude's name. It, I don't know. It doesn't really have the fricative nature of a, like what I would assume to be an insult. Yeah, I can see that. I read it that way first, just because it was a word that I didn't recognize that had an exclamation point after it, and it didn't read like a name necessarily either. I mean, it doesn't have the same cadence as a Bosquick, so I, I just assumed that he was swearing. Mm. But who can say? I guess it could mean like um, someone that's like low in the hierarchy of the service industry <laughs> in their planet. Like uh, it, it's a busser? Yeah, like a derisive way to say bus person. I don't think that Phil Vaught would talk to people that way. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't think that Boz... <laughs> what, what are you <laughs> Sorry, I don't even know. Oh, no. I, I don't think that Boz Quick would talk to anybody that way. He seems like a pretty stand-up guy. Now, now you're throwing these kitchen insults around. Uh, I'm sorry. That's uh, okay. No, it's not. I want to be absolutely clear that I have nothing but respect for restaurant workers and would never refer to anyone as a Philvot, unless their name was Philvot. So there is a weird exchange that happens when the defenders are leaving Las Vegas. Richard Rory, yeah, it's not the movie leaving Las Vegas. (laughs) Nicolas Cage shows up? Man, that is a bummer of a fucking movie. I haven't watched it because everybody I've talked to has said that about it. And you're a guy who went on a date to see Breaking the Waves. I didn't know what I was getting into. (laughs) Fair enough. Never again. (laughs) So as the Defenders are departing from the city of Las Vegas, there is a weird exchange. Richard Rory decides to stay behind, which I think is a nod to the fact that Richard Rory is kind of a stand-in for Steve Gerber. And it was often written that way. And Steve Gerber had, in fact, moved to Las Vegas at this point. Oh, no shit. So I feel like that was kind of a nod to that. And that makes sense. What doesn't make sense is everyone's reaction to that. Why do they think he's so great? It makes sense in the context of maybe as a writer, Ed Hannigan wanted to, like, tip his cap to Steve Gerber. But Richard Rory, as a stand-in for Steve Gerber, didn't do anything so hot in the eyes of most of these individuals. And they're all just like, wow, it was an honor to work with you, Mr. Richard Rory. Like, all he did in the past two issues was, I don't know, accidentally shoot Patsy in the back with a ray gun? Hang out with Fool Killer? Yeah, not a great outing for the dude. 
And Diane specifically is like, I think you're the real superhero, Mr. Rory. And I don't think they really interacted maybe at all in Omega the Unknown. And in this arc, I mean, maybe they had just like a great talk on the plane ride out to Vegas, but I don't understand her reaction towards him. And I especially don't understand Val backing that up and being like, yeah, you're the best, buddy. I was pretty baffled by that, too. I was I was curious to get your take on it, but it sounds like we're both at a bit of a loss there. Yeah, I mean, that and the fact that nobody seems to really have an emotional reaction to what they had perceived as their 12-year-old friend blowing himself up. Yeah, you'd think that would ruffle your feathers a little more. Yeah, the only person who seems actually upset at the events of the past few issues is Patsy, who's just mad that her psychic powers that she never used are gone. Mm -hmm. I get that that was invasive on Moondragon's part, and really a violation of trust, and she should have gotten consent before doing that, but it also seems like it should just be a bigger deal for everyone that they just watched this, not just this kid explode himself, but that they witnessed the death of an entire species at his hand previous to that. Like, this is some big shit, and they're pretty callous about it. Yeah, disturbingly so. Speaking of cities that start with loss, the fight with both Mutant Force and Fem Force takes place in the city of Los Animas, Colorado. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a typo or if it is a little joke that Hannigan was making, but there is a city called Los Animas, A-N-I-M-A-S, uh, which means the souls, and that is a city in Colorado, but they spelled it Animus, A-N-I-M-U-S, which means hostility, which I think is kind of a fun little joke or a telling typo. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go with joke. I hope so. You know what? It'll be a novel experience for me. I'm going to give Ed Hannigan the benefit of the doubt. All right. We also see that there is a preview for the next upcoming issue, which often when they tell us what the next issue is going to be called, the next issue is not actually called that. But we get a couple of different options as to what might be next. At the end of the Valkyrie, Wasp, and Hellcat story, we get that the next issue will be called Chains of Love, and that it will feature a surprise villain of the year. Do you think that surprise villain is going to be Erasure? Uh, refresh my memory? Because they did that song, Chains of Love. Oh. Come to me, comfort me, hold me, together we'll break these chains of love. Um, yeah, no, that reference was, was a wee bit too deep for, for me. Okay. I wasn't a big Erasure uh, listener. I wasn't a huge one, but Meg really liked them. Oh. The other option we have for a title for the next issue is the Tunnel World story ends with, Next, the secret of Arioica. Arioica. Maybe his secret is that he wants to form a British synth-pop group. How do you figure? It's another Erasure reference. Uh, oh. Like, maybe those stories tie together. Mm. 
did I miss what what he means by so when he unveils he he's got a pretty badass like head wing unveiling scene where he stands up from the table and pulls his cowl back and then like puts his fingers like steepled on the tabletop like he's you know making a big business announcement and says according to the written word I shall be your guide through hell itself if need be yeah well he had made reference and so had Steve to various prophecies so I think that's what he is referring to. Ah, that is the written word. Yeah. You mentioned that he steeples his fingers when he makes the big reveal. If I was him, and, you know, just a brief note, Mr. Arowika, maybe next time you unfurl your wings like that, hold your nostrils and blow your cheeks out real big so it looks like you're inflating them. I think that would be fun. <laughs> I bet he would do that, like, for a an audience that he wanted to amuse, but I, I think he's going for, like, maximum gravitas here mm. i mean he could also do the thing where you pretend that you're uh turning the handle on a jack in the box that would be fun too a lot of good options you could have with those head wings man this may come up later and behold or be gone but i bump into things with just like my elbows and my feet when i'm walking around the house yeah Nothing would survive head wings. Like, I would just be taking out entire, like, wine bottle aisles and grocery stores. Like, it would not go well for me. No, no. They would be a fucking nightmare. We're not going to even bother with the beholder be gone on that. Like I said, if you tried to fly, you would snap your neck and you would constantly be knocking shit over. I get that there's a certain majesticness to them, a goofy majesty, perhaps. But no, they're they're just not worth it. If you look at them, like ginormous feathered ears he looks even goofier that's true is there a context you could look at him and not think that it looks goofy there is none no well cory before we move on to the minutiae we do have one pre-minutia segment and it's maybe my favorite segment of the entire show yes it's time for a word from our sponsor Now, Corey, you know how you're always saying that word books are just for nerds and entertainment lawyers? I am pretty sure I've never said that. Well, I hope you've got a big dish of sriracha mayo, because you're about to eat those words. (laughs) Okay. Because there's a new book by New York Times bestselling author Hank Green called A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor? That's right, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor is a sequel and conclusion to Hank Green's first book, the New York Times bestselling An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, which is the story of a young woman thrown into fame during a global crisis of contagious dreams and mysterious robots. Robots, Corey! Now, other than thinking that they're for, quote, nerds and lawyers, and that maybe they'd, I don't know, ruin the lines of your cool dungaree jacket... What would you say is your biggest problem with books? Well, first of all, still pretty sure I never said that, but they're too hard to find and aren't available in a format that's convenient for me. Well, Corey, I have got some good news for you. A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor is available in hardcover, in ebook form, and as an audiobook. Wow. But where can I find it? Corey, that's the thing. You can find it wherever books are sold. You know, wherever. 
like on the internet, in bookstores, at a bazaar, probably. But if you can't find it anywhere else, you can always go to hankgreen.com and they'll get you where you need to go. It's so convenient. Hmm. Well, that sounds good. But what does the Library Journal have to say about it? Corey, I'm glad you asked. The Library Journal's starred review says, Throughout this adventurous, witty, and compelling novel, Green delivers sharp social commentary on the power of social media and both the benefits and horrendous consequences that follow when we give too much of ourselves to technology. Wow. But how does the San Francisco Chronicle feel about Hank Green's work? Oh, Corey, you and your gotcha journalism. Well, I'll have you know... The San Francisco Chronicle said of an absolutely remarkable thing, sparkling with mystery, humor, and the uncanny, this is a fun read, but beneath its effervescent tone, more complex themes are at play. Not bad. Not bad at all. But does it have a character named Miranda? Boy, are you hard to please. But good news! It does have a character named Miranda. Okay, I'm sold. When does A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green become available for purchase? That is the absolute best part. A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green is available right now. The book came out on July 7th, so you can go get it right now. I think I will. That's great news. I'll buy two so I can read it twice. Well, that's not really how it works, but I think Hank Green would appreciate the effort. And you know what? He should be rewarded because I really appreciate that part of his strategy for marketing this book is to sponsor a ton of smaller podcasts. And he took some of his own advance money and decided to do it that way. I mean, he also sponsored our podcast. But in addition to this huge, megalithic, incredibly popular podcast that we host, he also is promoting small podcasts, which I think is really nice of him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Way to pay it forward. You know, got to help the little guy out, too. Yeah. So, yeah, go out today and buy A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green. You'll be glad you did. And tell them, tighten up the defense sent ya. Rick, would you sing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yes, thank you. So, Corey, let's start by talking about favorite panels. The artwork in this issue, I actually really liked. How did you feel about it? I felt it was pretty consistent. I was impressed at the the battle scenery where there was a lot going on, but it didn't feel too muddy or busy. Yeah, we've talked before when Mike Esposito does the inks on Herb Trimpey, I feel like he kind of gives Herb Trimpey the space to be the most Herb Trimpey that he can be. Uh, So that's nice. Uh, What was your favorite panel? Gosh, there was... A few that were pretty different on page one, just mainly for the comedic effect. Uh, I called it uh, Trenchcoat Hulk. Always like a Trenchcoat Hulk. Yeah, it's pretty cute. Like it barely covers his, his butt, you know, because he's the Hulk. Yeah, Hulk shows a lot of butt in this issue, huh? Yeah, so that's a good one. He's kind of leaning on a lamp post, wearing a way too small trench coat, and just cracked me up. I also liked very much on page five, despite, you know, the problems with Strange kind of dividing the team into first string and second string players, but the one I called it No Rank or Hulk, and it's when they are doing the, I don't know what you call it in sports, but when they y'all put your hands into a thing in the middle and be like, go team. Yeah, 
Honestly, the thing that I always associate with that with is the show Married with Children, when they all say go Bundy and do that. Huh. But yeah, it seems out of character for the Defenders, who specifically only work together. These three, in fact, specifically only work together if it is under the clear understanding that they are not a team for them to have a teamwork ritual. But it is a nice moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know Ed O'Neill from Married with Children as a jujitsu black belt? I did not know that. Pretty weird. Yeah, I'll have to cancel my weekend plans to taunt Ed O'Neill. Yep. So uh, those are probably my top two. There was one other that I, I really thought was well done in terms of the emotion that it captured. And that is, I think, on page six. I called it Thoughtful Clea. That's the second panel where she's kind of morosely nursing that cup of coffee. But staring mm-hmm. off into the middle distance, you know, contemplating, heroing. It's a very simple panel, but the way that her face is drawn, in particular her eyes, it does really capture this, like, oh, I'm thinking so hard about this thing kind of expression. Yeah, I called that panel Happy Birthday, Clea, and I had that as one of my options as well. For me, I enjoyed that. There were a lot of panels that I enjoy. I liked the one where Val and the Wasp and Hellcat are walking into the trap set by Amber. I liked the one where Yellow Jacket is getting electrocuted, because nice to see that happen. But, I mean, I think I would be disingenuous if I went with anything other than the reveal of Aroyaka's earwings. It's just such a goofy look and such a weird reveal of, that's right, it's me, the guy who looks like this. I just kind of had to go with that one. Yeah, this almost makes me wonder if we should add another category that's like a guffaw category, where there's a panel that just makes you, you know, give a short bark of laughter. Because <laughs> this this one did that for sure. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if there's a panel that does that, that's going to be my favorite panel. What was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel? I'm going to go with a bit of exposition from the first page, which accompanies uh, Trenchcoat Hulk. In a way, the lone figure braving the rain-pelted streets of this Greenwich Village neighborhood is like the storm itself. Both are avatars of nature's fury, possessing the unthinking ability to sweep away the fragile works of man. I liked that a lot, too. That is some great flowery prose, and I like the idea of describing Hulk as a force of nature like that, but doing it in a really beautifully phrased way. Yeah, it was uh, almost respectful. You know, there's so much of Hulk's energy gets referred to as like him just being this unthinking brute and this, you know, violent thing. But yeah, this idea of it being kind of more of a, a natural like force of nature thing mm-hmm. was nice. So this is a very minor moment, but there's a couple of bits of Val's dialogue on page 21 that the first one seems to maybe belie Patsy's observation that Val doesn't even notice that Hank has taken charge. Because when Hank says, don't let him get to you, Val, we're turning the tide. Just keep up the pressure. You'd do even the Avengers proud. And she says, thank you. Is the way that I had to interpret the way that she says thank you. Because it's just like, thank you, dot, dot, dot. And it very much read to me as her saying, fuck you. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, you could read that into it for sure. On the same page, I also liked her saying, base coward, prepare to face your due chastisement to uh, old lobster claws. And the other one that I liked was on page 19. It is also Valkyrie. This time she is talking to Slither, the snake man, and saying, smug fool, have a care lest I cleave your serpentine body in twain. Mm -hmm. Good for you, Val. Yeah, she had some kick-ass turns of phrase in this. She really did, although I think ultimately I have to go with you. The introduction of the Hulk and the description of him as a force similar to the rain I thought was very nice, and I think that's ultimately my favorite. Cool. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were most worthy of note? I don't necessarily know that it's a fashion thing, and it is something that's come up before, but... Bosquip's stash is super impressive. It's a nice piece of facial hair work, and it is on point. Uh, yeah, Bosquip in general. I think he's supposed to be the same dude who before was smoking the pipe and having a Neapolitan hat. Mm-hmm. I like that guy. Yep. I wanted to mention, it's a very minor note, but it's something that either hadn't been there or I hadn't noticed on Namor before. On page three... He has an S on his belt buckle that just looks like he drew it on in a Sharpie. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. It makes me wonder if he was, like, on his way to Steve's house and, like, stopped and saw, like, I don't know, Galactus or somebody like that and was like, oh, yes, uh, superhero name on your belt buckle. That's a good look. Mm, Let me grab that Sharpie. S for Submariner. Very nice. Could be. Because I think normally he's just got like a scallop shell on there. Also, yeah, like you, you already called attention to it, but uh, Hulk's tiny trench coat, always a treat. Yep, I had that also, trench coat. I feel like normally guys like him and the thing are able to find one that fits a little better, like at some kind of a superheroes plus size store. But this time it looks like maybe just the men's warehouse was open because it is way too small for him. Mm-hmm. But I think, for me, my winner is Namor as accessory, where (laughs) hairy, purple, naked Hulk uh, having a little owl on his shoulder is just a really good look. Yeah, an accessory like that can really tie the whole lack of outfit together. Mm -hmm. I agree. If you're gonna walk naked into a bar, wear an owl on your shoulder. You'll be glad you did. Sage advice. Is that the Hulk's rules for this issue? We'll get to that later. (laughs) What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? I think my actual favorite one is really basic, and it's on, I think, page 12, and it's Burner burninating a tank, and the sound of the flames as they leap from his arms is whoosh. Whoosh is pretty good. I enjoyed that, too. My favorite... I think on page 19, it's really great when Patsy kicks the shocker in the back and it makes the noise, POOM! Yep. It's such a unique sound effect. I don't think I've ever seen it before. And I can see it making that noise. Yeah, that was a badass kind of both feet drop kick kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciated that, but I think my favorite is when the shocker does his bug zapper routine on 
Hank Pym, and it makes the noise zespazzed. Oof. Yeah. And it is such a fun image of him just getting fried. And yeah, I got to say, it's come up sartorially before, so I didn't mention it. Much as I am not a fan of Yellow Jacket, I do love his outfit. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to see him get bug zapped. And I enjoyed that. And I loved the sound effect for it. I found it was very evocative. Very electrical. Very bug zap. So there's already another dude named the Shocker who has nothing to do with this guy who doesn't have lobster claws. Like, we talked about him in the uh, Defender for a Day story. He has the weird, like, either fishnet or quilted outfit, Mm -hmm. and he controls vibrations. Mm -hmm. I wonder if these two ever got together. I think they'd have, like, a name fight of some sort. Maybe they could just be a team of Shockers. Yeah, but what would they, how would they refer to each other to differentiate? Uh... Lobster Claws and Quilted Plus? I'm a Lobster Claws, this guy's fishnet. (laughs) We are the Shockers! (laughs) (laughs) Corey? Yes? It's time for the category that everybody's been waiting for. Behold or be gone. Electric Lobsters. Hmm. How do you feel about electric lobsters? Do you want lobsters to have electrical powers? Are you glad that they don't? How do you feel about electric lobsters? Behold or be gone. Ooh. Um, I feel like we got electric eels. Sure. Are there other electrical sea creatures? I think just the eels, right? That's the only one I'm familiar with. Yeah, I don't I don't want to fuck with the eels like unique ecological niche. I'm gonna let them keep their thing. And also, I don't wanna make things even harder for the lobstermen. Right. I can understand that. I can see where, okay, right now, the lobsters already have a pretty decent defense going for themselves with, you know, hard shells and pointy, pinchy claws Mm -hmm. that maybe they don't need another defensive weapon. On the other hand, lobsters live like forever unless somebody kills them. And I feel like if they had electrical powers, they just keep growing bigger the whole time. I feel like if they had electrical powers, potentially, that is a free source of unlimited energy. So, that's nice. Although I don't want to necessarily exploit animals in that way. Or it's like a kaiju situation. Yeah! Or then you gotta build a giant robot to go, (laughs) go fight them. Okay, which side of that does that come on for you, though? I mean, is it you got to build a giant robot to go fight them, or you get to build a giant robot to go fight them? Oh, as an observer, it's a behold, but in a practical sense, it's a be gone. We we got enough fighting. Yeah, but I mean, also, if the lobsters are getting bigger, I'm kind of a fan of bigger lobsters. Oh, they're not as tasty. I don't know, man. I've had a big lobster that tasted pretty good. I'm not saying they're bad, but I think in general, once you get over get over two pounds, you run the risk of not being as nice of a dining experience. So overall, you're coming down on the side of be gone on electric lobsters. Afraid so. Gosh, it's a tough decision, but I gotta say, I just kind of want to see what these electric lobsters are going to get up to. So uh, you know what? Behold, <laughs> maybe it's time to let electric lobsters run things. Right now, I look at humanity kind of like the Rolling Stones. I mean, I like some of what they've done, but when I look at what they've put out for the past 30 years or so, maybe it's time to hang it up. All right. 
Every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as the worst offender? Man, this one was a real toss-up for me. I am having difficulty picking just one. I think I'm going to go with Steve. I'm going to go with Steve because I don't like that he told Clea to wait in the car. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't utilize all of the resources at his disposal, especially in the other team members. Agreed. To fight what is potentially you know, the biggest fight that they've, they've got coming. That just seems strategically bad. And then also sexist that he just chose the boys to go do the big fight. But as a runner-up, I also had Kyle because he does nothing but complain and thinks that, you know, it's raining just because the universe is mad at him and breaks a perfectly good whiskey glass by throwing it against the fireplace. Mm, I can certainly understand both of those. Just I want to throw uh, Hank Pym's name into the conversation here. Just if we're talking about shitty misogynists, his name has to go to the top of the list or near it anyway, just for assuming that he gets to be in charge of the group because he's the only dude there. Well, nature abhors a penis vacuum. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen some ads for those. <laughs> I, I, I'm not an apologist for Hank Pym. I just saw the opportunity no. for the. You saw the opportunity to use a penis vacuum and decided to seize it. Um, Carpe diem. <laughs> yeah, he not only assumed leadership, but he also just did a bad job in that he was the only defender, or rather the first defender to get captured, which kind of led to the other defenders getting captured in that they decided they really needed to hurry and rush their attempt to locate the Femme Force so they could try to take them hostage. He did a super shitty job, and he's a super shitty dude. But I think, like you, I have to ultimately go with Steve because he also did some shitty misogyny. And if he had sent his little ghost self after the Hulk instead of just sending out a weird psychic beacon thing or whatever, like a vague feeling to the Hulk, then he would have seen the Hulk fighting the giant space Barba Papa and he would be warned that the Hulk was a sleeper agent. Mm. So just through his own laziness and arrogance in assuming that the Hulk will do as he is told uh, immediately and him being like, why would the Hulk resist my mystical summoning? Dude, the Hulk always resists your mystical summoning. That's how the Hulk deals with that shit. Just send the fucking force ghost. At least that way, you'll know what the holdup is. And bonus, you get to see a fucking silver space barba papa. Bonus. So yeah, for the worst, I had Steve. Conversely, for the best, I had a tough time finding somebody who did a good job. Who did you have with this? Yeah, it may be a stretch, but I had Patsy because she beats up the shocker. (laughs) (laughs) Gives him a nice drop kick in the back. And she also sort of tries to warn the team that they're stepping into a trap by saying, hmm, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately that's... They did their thing and entered the trap. But she at least had something about it. I agree. Uh, I went with Val for similar reasons. I thought that she also did a good job fighting the shocker. She zapped him back with his own energy and I think was the person who knocked him out. She did a decent job in the fight. She refrained from murdering Hank Pym, which I guess is you could go either way on. But I decided to see the good in that. 
And she also, yes, Patsy sensed that something was wrong, but Valkyrie actually did figure out what it was, at least one thing that concretely was wrong with the way that Amber was acting. She was the one who was like, wait a minute, how do you know that they're called mutant force? So it's a toss up, but I decided to give the nod to her. Fair enough. In every issue of a Defenders comic, there's at least one character who has to act out of character in a way that is at odds with their previously established personality or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. Who did you have as your sucker in this issue? So earlier on when we were talking about Submariner getting turned into an owl, I made a joke about needing to change my sucker. Turns out, it does dovetail nicely. No foul pun intended. But I had Subby because A, Steve sent him a, a little mystical telegram as well, which is normally the kind of thing that pisses him off, and he does say something about that. Actually, Steve showed up in person in Atlantis and recruited him face-to-face. Oh, yeah, you're right. He says, at least you contacted me in person. Could you not have sent your ghostly spirit after the behemoth? Okay. Yeah. That said... <laughs> I I think I'm going to stick with Namor because he agrees to basically come back and join the team. And as they're doing their little like hand on hand uh, go team thing, he says that he'll basically join them without Rancor. And I expect at least some degree of Rancor at all times from a Namor and Steve expedition, just as their egos clash and whatnot. So that was initially why I had him as the sucker, but also the fact that he agreed to be turned into a, a small owl that would perch on uh, the uh, Purple Hulk's shoulder. Yeah. That doesn't seem like something he would go for. No, I agree. I agree. If nothing else, I would think he would want to be like an osprey or something, you know? A majestic wing-headed bird. <laughs> exactly. I had kind of a toss-up. I decided to ultimately go with Diane. For reasons that we talked about already, just the fact that her and Val and Patsy all suddenly think that Richard Rory is a great guy. Like I said, it makes sense in terms of the author tipping his cap to the previous author, who that character is a stand-in for, but Richard Rory didn't do shit, and I don't know why these people like him. I decided to go with Diane because I think she has the most concrete expression of that inexplicable gratitude, but I think it could be any of them, really. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, this one is a little more literal than than usual, but the Hulk's rules in this issue stem from one of his thought bubbles at the beginning of the story, where he's standing outside in the rain, and just thinking like, oh, this sucks, but I also don't really want to go hang out with Doctor Strange. <laughs> and the thought bubble is, but why does Hulk stay in the rain when he could go into Magician's house? And mm. the Hulk's rule here, the takeaway from this, is you need to challenge yourself when you feel stuck in a situation. So he is challenging himself to figure out what is going on with this relationship he has with Steve and, you know, get to the bottom of the source of discomfort with it so that they can move on in a healthier manner, which is uh, a really hard thing to do sometimes. But that's that's essentially what he's he's getting at. I think that's a very good role for the Hulk to learn. I had the Hulk's rule being 
In an emergency situation, it is better to call than to text. Mm. Which he learned from Steve the way that he decided to summon the Hulk. The Hulk got a vague feeling that he should head back to where Steve is. But if Steve had called, if he had done the equivalent of calling, which is send his Jedi ghost out after the Hulk, then, like I said, Steve would have seen the silver space Barba Papa, he would have known that the Hulk was a sleeper agent, and he wouldn't have to wonder why the Hulk had resisted his mystical summonings. Mystical summonings are the equivalent of a text message. They're easier, but they're also easier to ignore. So, yeah, when it's an emergency, you call instead of text. And that was the Hulk's rule. Good rule? I think so. Well, I have but one final question I must put to you, Corey. In the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord, December, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Mm. Wong was trying to, I guess I don't want to say drown his sorrows, but more so commiserate with some buddies about something that had been bothering him a little bit. So he just needed some time away from the Sanctum Sanctimonious and from Steve. And uh, went up to visit some of his, his buddies up north in Canada. He's hanging out with a couple of his friends. One uh, photo editor named Chris Haney. Another guy, uh, hockey aficionado Scott Abbott. They're at a bar, and uh, there's a game of Scrabble on the table. You know, they were shooting the shit and uh, talking and playing some Scrabble. And as this was going on, Wong, you know, as he got deeper into his cups, was talking about how he was really disappointed at a, a change where, you know, he and Steve used to have this nice uh, kind of ritual in the evening, a little ways after dinner, uh, where they'd, uh, you know, have some slices of pie and, and talk about uh, the events of the day or what was going on or odds and ends that they had learned. And, you know, it was a kind of a nice outside of the working relationship, like hangout time. But lately, you know, Steve has pretty much gone most of the time and all of his spare time, he's off watching those stupid flame ghosts with the door locked and, you know, just getting up to who knows what other trivial pursuits. And that's, you know, what, what, what Wong said to, to these guys he was having a drink with. Hmm. And this, this led uh, Haney and Abbott actually to some conclusions where they connected, like, wouldn't it be better if we had a game that talked about facts and world events and, you know, maybe even something better than this game of Scrabble we're playing and, you could have like uh, little pieces of pie that you would you would fill in. <laughs> yeah. So on December fifteenth of nineteen seventy nine, Chris Haney and Scott Abbott uh, came up with the idea for Trivial Pursuit, which, as we all know now, over time became really popular. By nineteen eighty four, twenty million copies of the game had been sold, and global stakes in the game had reached hundred million copies in twenty six countries and. 17 languages, cumulative sales estimated to be in excess of a billion dollars since its creation. So, whoa, uh, Chris and uh, Scott owe Wong their gratitude. It sounds like they do. Yeah, that was one thing that Wong was up to in December of 1979. The other one also had to do with his relationship with Steve, as so many of these end up doing. But Steve was feeling, frankly, a little bit guilty about the fact that he had been kind of dismissive of and negligent of Wong lately. So he decided he was going to get Wong a really good Christmas present. So he started asking and dropping hints and trying to figure out what it was that Wong wanted. And Wong picked up on this and 
the most popular present in December of 1979 for Christmas was the Atari 2600. It had come out a couple of years ago, but this was the year that sales really started to skyrocket, and that's because there were some new games that had been released that year. So Wong, you know, he has an interest in computers. He really wanted an Atari 2600, specifically one that had Lunar Lander. And so Steve jotted that down when he heard Wong talking, but he got distracted as he was jotting it down. So when he came back to find his own note, he just saw Lunar Land. Hmm, I don't remember Wong saying that, but you know what? He's been very good this year. I think I will buy him land on the moon. And that was not what Wong wanted, and he got wind that that was what Steve had in mind, and that would have caused all kinds of problems. Like, I mean, it would cause problems in our universe, but in the Marvel universe, it's even more complicated with lunar land rights, because you got the Inhumans occasionally live up there, you got the Watcher who lives up there, I think uh, the Red Ghost and his super apes live up there, and so... Wong just was like, oh, this is going to cause so many problems. And also, if he does that, I won't get the Atari 2600. So he got a number of nations to sit down, 19 nations, in, fa in fact, and sign what became known as the Moon Treaty, which was signed in December of 1979, which basically said that property on the moon would be treated under international law. And so you can just sell hunks of the moon to each other all willy-nilly. And Steve was pretty disappointed by that, but he ended up figuring it would be less trouble to just get Wong, the Atari 2600, with Lunar Lander. Oh, it worked Because he figured this is the next best thing to what Wong really wants, which is Lunar Land. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in December of 1979. All right, I'm glad he got his wish. Yeah, I am too. I think he deserves it. I gotta say, I'm a little bit bummed that we're now moving into the 80s with both the series that we're covering. I mean, 80s have some fun stuff, but uh, yeah, we're, we're out of the 70s. Mm. I hope the goofiness persists. I mean, I think the debut of Eroica is a pretty good nod in that direction. Agreed. Well, thank you for joining us, Corey. This has been a real treat. You are welcome. And thank you for joining us, listeners. I hope it's been treatful for you as well. And you know what? Thanks again, Hank Green, for sponsoring this episode. So yeah, you guys should all go out and get A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. I think I'm going to. It actually sounds like a very interesting book. So thanks, Hank. If you would like to get into touch with us, perhaps find out how to sponsor the show like Hank Green did, we can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294, or... As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to find another way to get into touch with us, uh, why not try the social medias? We're all up in the mix in those. We're on the Twitter, the Tumblr, the Facebook, the uh, Instagram, I think Grinder probably, LinkedIn, Friendster maybe. GeoCities. <laughs> uh, 
Netscape 2.0, all of the computer words. Just type Titan up the defense into your web browser and see where the internet takes you. And if you can't find us there, well, try looking inside your heart. We'll be there. We've been there all along. Having fun. Maybe playing some Trivial Pursuit. That's a fun game. Sure. Maybe enjoying some pursuits that are less trivial, like uh, friendship or I don't know, Corey, what's that? What's a what's a pursuit that isn't trivial? Um, learning how to make pizza. Yeah, we might be doing something important in there, like learning to make pizza. Hope your heart is well ventilated or well ventricle aided. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't help with the pizza oven that we're going to need to put in there. But you know what? It's a fun pun, and that will uh, lower your blood pressure, so it will be able to withstand the physical endurance of us heating an oven up to 450 degrees inside your heart. I think that's how science works, right? Maybe even hotter. Well, either way, I wouldn't be looking to get the security deposit back on that heart of yours. Mm. Ooh, that sounds like that might be like a country song. Security deposit to your heart? Yeah. I lost the security deposit on my heart because oh. you broke it. Oh, there you go. You can have that idea for free. Anyone who's listening, just write a country song and you can have it for free. But maybe if you wanted to send me some money, that would be nice, too. If you'd like to send me some money, a great way to do that is through Patreon. If you visit us at patreon.com slash TT Wasteland, you get access to all kinds of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the show that we host about Howard the Duck and his comics from the 70s. But there's also a ton of video reviews of classic comic books that I've been making. I recently talked about Captain America number 327, which features the character Super Patriot, and is a very interesting exploration of the nature of Captain America and the groups that embrace his ideology and those that seek to subvert it. It's a really interesting comic book. And so, yeah, if you go there, you can see my thoughts on that and a bunch of other comic books. I've been averaging four or five of those a week. And there's also just a bunch of other bonus material, podcasts and videos and I don't know, probably some pictures on there too, somewhere. So if you donate, you get access to all of that material. Plus, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. Other than that, if you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is to leave us a review on any place that you can leave reviews. You know, leave us a review on Yelp. Leave us a review on a bathroom wall. Or, if you don't feel like doing those, why don't you leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. Helps people find the show, so if you think that's the sort of thing they should do, why not leave us a review? I'd certainly appreciate it. Anything else? Um, nope. Okay. Well, send us your thoughts on electric lobsters. And you know what? Maybe you will get that security deposit back on your heart. Who knows? Hey, and maybe just send us some electric lobsters if you got them. I'd like to see how that pans out. Careful what you ask for. No. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> and they knew it.
Have you read Nomen, Nomon by uh, Nick Harkaway? I have not. Oh, man. That's, we can talk about that offline. That book is bending my mind in two. What's it called? It's G-N-O-M-O-N. Hmm. Nomon. Is it like a sequel to Nomeo and Juliet, but this one's about King Solomon, but a gnome? Oh, man. Waldo <laughs> <laughs> was right. How do I put up with you? <laughs> we could be reached at Tighten up the defense at blah, 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 blah. That is not how they get in touch with us. Well, they could try. <laughs> <laughs>